Welcome to another episode of Petty Politics, bringing you the petty and the political at all times. At all times, per usual. I'm Brianna. I'm Cam. What's going on, y'all? Yeah, uh, a lot, per usual. First and foremost, happy Black History Month. Yes, exactly. To all y'all. Race fist emoji. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Insert race fist emoji, the darker one, because now the emojis do have color selections. Thank the Jesus. Thank you, Apple. (laughs) Also, happy Mardi Gras to folks out there. Happy Ash Wednesday. Happy Start of Lent to folks who are going to be be giving something up for the next 40 days. Yeah, and happy congratulatory celebration to those who are celebrating the fact that they still have jobs because the government has shut down twice in a month span, so it's back up. I'm surprised it's back. (laughs) No, me too. Exactly, me too. Also, shout out to the folks kicking (laughs) the Winter Olympics. I love figure skating. (laughs) I didn't know you were actually going to say it. I'm, I'm, I'm living my truth. Sure. All right. Shout out to Chloe Kim being out there, being an immigrant, and also kicking tons of butt in snowboarding. Sean White got a gold medal last night, I heard, as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Happy Valentine's Day to folks, too. Oh. I mean, that's a thing for, for people who have love and share <laughs> it with others. love, life, know? capitalism. Oh. And, <laughs> and amongst other things. But let's get started. Okay, what are we talking about today, Cam? So for Life in the Law, we're going to be talking about nailing your law school interview. It's one of the main parts of a law school application process that gets people really confused because we don't know what is to be expected. So we're going to talk about our experiences with our interviews and give you some tips on things to help you prepare before and during your interview. Perfect. And what about the political? So first, we're going to start talking about Russia and its attempt successfully (laughs) to hack our state voter rolls. And there's a whole bunch of different aspects of that that we're going to get into. It's wild, though, the fact that... No, it's it's wild that they are getting away with it. So I don't even know if I'm more shocked that they successfully did the action or the fact that they're just completely getting away with meddling in the 2016 election. Real. What else are we talking about? That's the thing. Um, We're also talking about the Me Too movement in particular... Rob Porter of HLS 08, I'm ashamed to say. (laughs) We're talking about Uma Thurman, and we're also talking about Quentin Tarantino. Barely. Barely, yeah. Just like kind of like his brief input on the movement. Um, We're also getting into Trump releasing his new infrastructure plan and budget. There are a lot of things that we have to talk about in for that sure. arena, so we'll we'll try to get through that pretty quickly. And for the petty, what are we talking about today? So we're going to talk about Kylie Jenner. I don't know why, but apparently she why. had a baby. You know what? And it's tigers. Is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Is it tigers? No, that was me being petty before the petty. <laughs> no, no, no. It might be. We don't know. Um, we're also talking about Trump wanting a military parade and... Our good sister Amarosa spilling the tea on Big Brother. All about the Trump administration and all about potentially why she was fired. You know what? I don't know why we're focusing more on Amarosa than we're focusing on Tiffany Pollard, which is the star of Big Brother and also my personal hero. But we'll get into that. We'll get more into that. Shout out to her. (laughs) I love New York. (laughs) Let's get into it.
All right, let's get into life in the law for this week. We're going to be talking about law school interviews. Now, law school interviews are one of the most arduous points in your law school application process because, one, you know you've put in your application, you've got all your rec letters in, you've cried about your GPA and OSAT scores for long enough, and you finally found the courage to submit it. Now you know that they liked it, right? They loved it. Did they love it, question mark? But uh. they liked it because they were <laughs> they liked it enough to give you an interview. So we're going to get into some of the logistics really quick. And the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that interviews are given out very broadly. Many places are going to send out a lot of interview requests. So it's definitely the moment for you to be excited. Yes, you made it for past the first hurdle in the law school application process. But there are still a lot of things you have to do before and after your interview to make sure that you're going to be an ideal candidate for this law school. I say all of that to say, make sure that you're still quote unquote on even after your interview. I could say maybe even two times as many interviews go out as people are admitted to the law Really? You think so? I think there's a very wide net when it comes to interviews because they have a lot of people that they're going to ultimately reject, waitlist, and then if Mm -hmm. you're waitlisted, you could be accepted or rejected off the waitlist. So So there's a lot of things happening. So why do you think that they give such a broad net towards interviewing? Well, I think that they want to understand the applicant on a personal level. They want to know the person behind that application. They've read about you. They've read other people's takes on you. But then they want to finally have the opportunity to see you face-to-face, to see your demeanor, and also to answer any questions that you might have for them. So interviews for law school admissions usually run pretty short. They're about 15 to 20 minutes. At least mine was. I don't know. Yeah, mine was 15 minutes. About, yeah. yeah. So they're pretty short. I feel like I had spent so much time preparing for like an hour-long interview and it was going to have so many different questions and I was going to feel challenged and they were going to give me a trick LSAT question just to make sure that I <laughs> that I was the real deal. Oh God. But it's very short and they want to ask you a couple of questions. They want to answer a couple of your questions and then it's really over. So most schools are going to do Skype interviews for you. Mine was a Skype interview. I don't know about you, Brie. Was it also? Same. So you want to make sure that you are very familiar with Skype, that you've tried it out and that you have some contingency plans just in case there are any technical difficulties. Oh, dear. God, please don't, first of all, use your username from high school. My oh. username had an expletive. So first of all, make a new Skype Real. for this interview, firstly. But secondly, know how to work it and don't try to practice the day of and then be late for your interview. You want to be on time for this, meaning that you're on Skype online 10 minutes beforehand. They may be late to it, but you want to be the one that is showing that you are prompt and on time totally prepared. As some of us have experienced, no shade, no tea. Mm. (laughs) So typically you'll have one interviewer, meaning that you'll just be face to face with one person having a conversation, but you should be prepared just in case there is more than one. You never know what the law school admissions committee is going to throw your way. So you want to be prepared in case you have to speak to two different people and answer questions from more than one person as well. Also, the questions that you'll normally be asked about are not going to be questions that are meant to trip you up or meant to make you feel uncomfortable. They're going to be your basic academic professional questions about your accomplishments. They're going to look at your resume and ask you things about what you've done. They're going to also ask why you want to go to law school. So you should be ready for those questions that you can expect. For example, if they're asking about an organization that you highlighted on your resume, you might want to look over a bit and think about the work that you've done so you're not kind of stuttering through it. Also, if they're asking about a topic that you mentioned in your diversity statement or even your personal statement, you might want to read over both of them the night before just so you know you're prepared and you're able to discuss with them in detail 
tell what you went through. I think it's also a really good strategy before your interview and honestly before you send in your application to be strategic about what you highlight because whatever you put at the forefront are going to be the things that catch their eye quicker and they're going to be things they're going to want to ask you more about. So those are a lot of the logistical concerns, but obviously there are a lot of general things you'd want to keep in mind as you prepare and also while you're in it. Firstly, you are the commodity. Challenge the admissions rep. Make them have to sell their law school to you. Remember, you're providing an invaluable piece to the diverse applicant pool, and you're going to bring that to the table. You're not wanting them. They want you. Well, you do want them. Just don't let them know. <laughs> right, right. I think that's the, key. that's the key part, right? Because it really changes your demeanor in the interview if you are able to reorient yourself. We've talked about this in the diversity uh, statement episode, too. It's just really important for you to go in confidently, recognizing that they also have to prove themselves to you while you are proving yourself to them. Exactly. Secondly, do your homework. What are some ways you can do your homework, Cam? So uh, we already talked about this last episode, but using LinkedIn to your advantage is yes. a great way to do it. Um, it's just really important that you study up on the school. And some of the organizations in the school in particular, for example, your entire application has been oriented towards public interest. Well, highlight some of the public interest orgs that you've looked up on the website and you seek to join and not only join, but add something invaluable to it. Absolutely. I asked questions about professors that I had heard about that were doing great work. I asked questions about organizations, clinical mm -hmm. programs. So you can look for a lot of different ways for you to be able to show that you've done your research and that also make them think about their own school in ways that they can advertise their school to you in a better way. Yeah, but also this shows that you truly have an interest in matriculating because remember, they don't want to give someone an offer who's not going to attend. It's all about capitalism, guys. It's you know, all about yield to fill their, Yeah, they want to fill their seats. And so you want to show them that that school, regardless of whether it's true or not, is your top choice. So let's talk about some questions that you can prepare in advance to ask during your interview. Asking questions, or at least having some available at your disposal, is really important because it's almost always going to be something that they pose to you at the end of the interview. Now, you may not have time to ask many questions. I think I asked one or two questions before our time was up, but it's good to have three to five questions lined up on things that you care about. And this is more for the folks who feel like they don't know what to ask about. Because there's yeah. some people who have many questions, right? Well, like they not do even want things, to know things. Yeah, not even things that you just care about, but things that, that are a prerequisite towards your law school success. So, for example, for me, coming from a low-income background, I needed to know about need-based financial aid. Absolutely. And how after law school, I was going to be able to pay back my loans. That's when I also wanted to know about the joint degree program. I love politics, as you can see, petty politics. <laughs> and I wanted to know what courses were that I would be able to take in the government school. To be able to like brush up and also get yeah, more exactly, skills. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's a really great question to be able to ask. I think in general that goes towards the law school specific questions that you can ask. Mm -hmm. Look in the news to see what's been going on. If there are any controversial happenings, Ooh. you should try to bring those up. Do I you actually think say, so? I totally recommend. I, I, I might, oh my God, this is, might be a first. I might have to disagree with well, you. Well, let me on give that. you, I'll give you my idea and you can agree or disagree. Okay, okay. I'll I push think back. it's actually very important to ask at least 
least one challenging or critical question to the law school because it is important that they recognize that they aren't perfect, that they have their own issues that they need to be working on, and that oftentimes how they deal with those issues is going to influence your decision. Okay, so when you said that, I'm immediately thinking controversial happenings outside of the law school. So, for example, bringing kind of your political affiliation into your interview. And when is politics and religion ever appropriate to discuss at the dinner table? Yeah, I wouldn't do that. But like, for example, recently Stanford Law School has been talking about some issues of racism on campus. So if you're an underrepresented minority applicant and these issues matter to you, it would be a good idea for you to ask in an interview with Stanford Law School. So I've been hearing this news about racist incidents on campus, and I'd love to know what responses you've been able to make. I care about these Amazing, issues. Exactly. You know, that's one way for you to be able to show that they need to be working on things because they have issues and that their answer to that question matters. Sometimes they'll feel flustered. Sometimes they may stutter in their response. And now you've had them shook. It really shifts the dynamic in the conversation and makes you feel like you are requiring them to prove that they are a good school for you to have your legal education. For sure. There is an accountability standard that you're showing that you're requiring of your law school, and they're going to look at that and think positively. So there also are some technical issues that we wanted to get into regarding your interview. So we kind of already got through being able to use Skype if you have an electronic interview, but also some things that are logistically required of using Skype. For example, if you're having a Skype interview, you don't need to have that naked poster of Trina in your background. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> who has? Who who are you speaking to? In your By this, Brie means that you should have a blank background, or at least a pleasant one. I wouldn't say a blank background, to be honest. I'd say pleasant, right? A pleasant. I chose a white wall because I just thought, you know what? I can't go wrong with this. Right. My room at the time was very colorful. I was in a very Romani stage during undergrad, and so I chose my kitchen wall. I think that's a good idea. My room was very large, and so they really couldn't see much behind me anyway. But I did want to have something there, like there was a plant, you know, like <laughs> like something that kind of makes the room look lived in. Like you didn't exactly. just go into a warehouse to be able to stay away from your Trina posters exactly. on the wall. Now, so. guys, this is a Skype interview, not a telephone interview. What does that mean? That means they can see you just like you can see them. So if you're sitting in your bed eating a bowl of Cheerios, they're probably not going to think that this is the best fit. You're speaking to the wrong audience. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm being dramatic. Okay, I'm being an extremist per use and I'm being dramatic. No, but seriously, dress nice. I right. wore a button-up shirt yeah. and I, I think I even throw in a blazer. My bottom half, I think I was wearing pajama pants, but that doesn't matter because see, they can't see that. See, you, you, you're <laughs> not talking to your myself, own, right? Right. You're not taking your own advice. My Trina posters in my pajamas. I wore a full suit. <laughs> really? Full suit with no, tie. No, 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 no. No, everything. Everything. Oh, my God. You did everything. Because no, my you never hair was, know. My hair was immaculate that day. Meticulously done. <laughs> so I would definitely say wear a full formal outfit, right? You don't have to go with a full tux or anything like that, but look presentable. I would say look at the lens of the camera on your laptop, not at your screen. That's one kind of subtle way to show eye contact, which is always really hard when you're doing Skype, because if you look at your screen, it looks like you're looking down. But if you look directly at the lens, then you can't see the person that you're talking to. But I think it's really important to give them eye contact. So I would look directly at the lens of the camera and not at your screen. Don't look at yourself the entire time like you do on FaceTime. It's unnecessary. Don't be all up in your hair trying to fix yourself. Look at the lens. 
One other strategy that I would tell people is to back away from your laptop or computer when you're doing your interview. So for me, I thought it was really important that I was able to use hand gestures while doing my interview. And so I sat further back from my laptop where you could see the entirety of my upper half. You could see my waist and you could see my arm. So I was able to give hand gestures. I was able to kind of be a little bit more emotive, which I think helps you as opposed to kind of having just your chest up and they just see your mouth moving, but it it doesn't really feel as natural as them looking at you from the waist up. I agree. I think that that's a very useful tip. Also, have contingency plans ready. Oftentimes, you can discuss this with your interviewer beforehand or they'll tell you what the contingency plan is because this happens. Your computer might short out. Skype might not work properly. I've had that issue happen to me before with other interviews. So you just have to be ready for anything. Don't let it get you flustered. Don't get nervous about it because this is just a part of the interviewing process when you're using Skype or any other type of online video service. Okay, everyone. So just remember those useful tips. If you have any questions, feel free to email us. We're always open to answer. We've been getting mail, guys. Yay. Absolutely. Harvard Balsa Petty Politics at gmail.com. And best of luck with your interviews. You're going to be nervous about it, but. Be yourself. Right. Just be yourself. You're perfect. And that's why they're trying to interview you, anyways. They need you. Remember, they need you. Cool. Cool. <laughs> All right, y'all, let's get into the political. We're going to start today talking about Russia, as we always do. <laughs> Don't we? Haven't we been for the, like the past 10 episodes? I'm exhausted at this point, but truly Russia isn't. So <laughs> that was if really it already wasn't clear to us, Russia is very invested in our election process and destroying our democracy. So as early as 2016, we knew that the Illinois Board of Elections had acknowledged being hacked by Russians during that process. So it's not even like we didn't know this was happening already. The question has always been the scope. To what extent were they hacking our systems? Exactly. And not even just voter systems. We saw them coming into and infiltrating our social media to produce these divisive ads to make the election process even more divisive than it already was. And we saw them in the ear of several individuals that are now top aides in the Trump administration. And so if it wasn't obvious enough that they have some type of interest in the election system, now we know that they hacked the voter rows. So now we know the scope of Russia's hacking. News reports have come out recently that Russia attempted to hack 21 states and access their voter rolls, and they succeeded in infiltrating the voter rolls for five states. Yes, they were successful. However, they only accessed registration logs, not the actual votes, booths, or tabulation. So we're told. So we're told. Exactly. Right. So we're told. So we don't really know what that means, but at le- that means well, they know people's information, though. There's still... no evidence of alteration to voter rolls yet, and right. we're going to emphasize yet. Okay. Because we, this came out as a trickle, too. Like, this news has come out a year later, but there's still an investigation of what Russia was doing during the 2016 election. And now, actually, there's questions of what they're going to do for the 2018 election. I heard that they're actively interfering already. Indeed. So earlier this week, we actually got more news that Russia is already working on infiltrating and accessing our voter rolls for the 2018 midterm elections. Earlier this week, the Senate Intelligence Committee had a hearing with multiple top-level intelligence officials from the FBI, the NSA, and all these other intelligence organizations. Each of them agreed unanimously that Russia is now actively engaged 
in another cyber warfare activity. Now, they couldn't tell us as the public what they're doing to counterattack that, but they said they're doing something. So let's hope that they're doing it. But, you know, (laughs) I don't know, seemingly because Trump and Putin are best friends these days, as we as as evidence from this whole debacle over the sanctions. So I'm not too confident. Exactly. It's just like, I don't think that there's enough information for us to understand what we should be doing differently, especially if their strategies are so widespread and so technical that like you could be in a Facebook group with a bunch of folks that was created by a Russian bot or like retweet something on Twitter that was actually made by a Russian bot. So without us having the information that we need to be able to make like meaningful decisions about our voting and about the democracy it actually feels like it's like we're children and they're like let the grown-ups handle it let facebook google but again i don't even think that we need to be talking about protecting ourselves because although we have to reasonably limit the type of things that we expose ourselves to it's not fair that we're dealing with this when i feel that the united states government is facilitating it so Mm. as opposed to us protecting ourselves they need to stop facilitating this type of behavior and continue to put tough sanctions on russia until the behavior stops that's actually a really important part of the hearing yesterday the fact that when these you know intelligence chiefs were asked whether they've received any directive from trump about dealing with the russia hacking incidents either in 2016 or 2018 all of them said no that like trump has not even touched the issue he hasn't shown any concern for it honestly it's not clear if he believed that the thing well the that's the thing trump does not believe that russians are in any way affecting our elections and you know why he doesn't believe it's because he won Exactly. But if Clinton had won, then I think that he would be all on this. And I think that he would even be self-funded in his promotions towards bringing down Putin. I mean, despite the fact that she lost, I still feel like they're trying to do that. Like, I'm sure I've seen news reports where people are like, if any if anything happened between Russia and the United States, it was because Hillary Clinton wanted it to happen. And because she was coordinating, like when they were doing this whole um, uranium scandal with Hillary Clinton and, and the Russians, that was their attempt to show that if there was any type of collusion or any type of clandestine actions happening. It was between Clinton and the Russians, which I'm not saying isn't true. It probably is true as well. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know. Um, I wouldn't hold it past them. But the fact that Trump is still dealing with these issues in his administration with multiple different investigations going on, led by the government, it would make sense that he would actually take a step to ensure our voting infrastructure before the 2018 elections later this year. In fact, there actually is going to be early voting beginning in like the next month or so. I know Texas begins really early. So it's just the fact that if we don't do something within the next couple of weeks, it already means that Russia will start having access to 2018 voting information and could be compromising that information already. I feel that Trump has been very tactical when it comes to the rhetoric surrounding around Russia's meddling. When he thought that he was going to lose the election, he was talking a lot about voter fraud and such. And he didn't implicate Russia, but he did make it seem as though something very egregious was happening behind the scenes with the Clinton campaign. And everyone was like, stop. No, you're being a bad sport. Everyone immediately negated what he was saying. And so now that he's on the president of the United States, people are still able to negate it in the same way. Although maybe he was saying it originally because he knew that maybe that they were meddling, you know, and he knew, exactly. He knew that people were going to refute it and still be refuting it. So at least he would have that base. But I mean, let's not 
forget that he also was saying, hey, Russia, if you're listening, you should, you know, send us those Hillary Clinton emails if you can find them. I mean, didn't didn't his uh, son tweet that, though, to WikiLeaks? Like, (laughs) weren't they? I feel like the evidence is all here. Uh, Exactly. we'll We'll let Mueller do his work. Um, but but that is still a, r- a really important risk because it's one thing for us to talk about this in the political realm. Yes, there's a lot of you know complicated details about what Trump's relationship is with the Russians and what his administration's relationships are with Russian oligarchs and Russian officials. But beyond all of that, this is going to influence us as Americans, the fact that our votes can't be trusted, that we don't know that when we go into this private room and fill out the secret ballot, that it is going to be counted in the way that we want it to be counted. Which disincentivizes many communities from even trying to vote at this point. Exactly. Like, we're already dealing with redistricting issues. We're already dealing with voter disenfranchisement, gerrymandering. We deal with enough, especially if you're a person of color or you're a low-income person, if you're elderly, there are already a lot of different laws that are being put into place that are going to make it harder and harder for people to vote in in the midterm elections. So even those people who do get to vote are going to deal with more roadblocks in the form of Russian interference in some way, shape, or form. So, And just like that, the democracy became an authoritarian regime. <laughs> and just like that. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm exhausted, too. To simply put, Putin and uh, Trump are best friends, and that's that. So, so hide your keys, hide your ballot, you know. Um, just hide ma- your ballot, hide your pins. <laughs> my pins? No, I'm kidding. Um, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And we'll, of course, be keeping an eye out for what else Russia tries to do in this midterm election. There'll be something every day, everyone. Check your news source. Oh, d- except it, unless it's Fox, then don't check it. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> So this week in Me Too, we've had several women come forward and talk about their experiences with sexual harassment, which at this point is an epidemic in not only politics, but in social culture. Absolutely. So let's start in the political realm. There's Rob Porter, former HLS. I don't even want to have to say that. I want us to start with that, in fact. I want us to get right into it. No! (laughs) Tell us about Rob Porter, class of 08. Okay, I wasn't here during class of 08, so (laughs) he wasn't my classmate. We take the good and the bad. Exactly. We take the good and the bad. So Rob Porter, who was the White House staff secretary, working very closely with Trump, uh, allegedly he's part of Trump's inner circle. I don't know what that means, but I feel like a lot of people are. Just everyone? Yeah, (laughs) white men, family. Truly. Nepotism. Um, He resigned from his position on Wednesday uh, before, well, what was his position in the first place? He was responsible for the flow of presidential paperwork in the West Wing. He was, right. respons- he was basically the gatekeeper of the Oval Office, and he ensured that the executive orders and the memos and the bills and the nominations were th- were vetted. I mean, I didn't think anyone was doing that job, but apparently apparently, this was Rob Porter's job. So first of all, he wasn't even doing his job in the first place. Well. <laughs> but regardless, he resigned from his position on February the 7th due to very credible allegations from his ex-wives of abuse. Domestic violence. Rob Porter was in the middle of his FBI security evaluation. They were trying to determine whether he would receive security clearance. And to do that, the FBI does a background check, as many organizations do. Now, doing this background check, Rob Porter already was shook. He went to members of the Trump administration in the White House and told them early, hey, I have two ex-wives. They're going to say some nasty things about me. 
What we didn't know is that those nasty things involved abuse, verbal, emotional, and physical abuse of his ex-wives. Verbal, emotional, physical, and photographed, might I add. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about uh, his two ex-wives. So both of Rob Porter's wives have come forward. Colby Holderness and Jennifer Willoughby, hashtag say their names, um, have come through to talk about the experiences that they had with Rob Porter. Some of them involved him dragging one of his wives out of the shower to yell at her. This involved him telling them that they didn't care about him and that they were putting other things ahead of their relationship. This also involved Rob Porter physically assaulting one of his wives, causing a black eye, which was then spread across the news waves. So all of this information is now coming out, and now suddenly it is, I guess, clear to the White House that Rob Porter needed to go. The question is whether or not he was let go, i.e. fired, or he resigned. And that's currently the issue of conversation amongst the news media and also amongst members of the White House, especially John Kelly. Well, John Kelly, first of all, he has been discredible since he was challenged on the fact that he leveraged his standing as a retired four-star Marine Corps general who lost a son on the battlefield to try to contain a political crisis over President Trump's very inappropriate calls to the families of the fallen soldiers. Okay, that's the first issue. And then his reputation took another hit and the credibility again on the line when he said that the Civil War was because of a lack of compromise. Right. Right. <laughs> that was an issue. And We've then, been suspect. And then wait, but wait, that's not the end of it. Then he went further to say that the immigrants that are the dreamers were, and I quote, too lazy to get off of their asses to apply for DACA. Okay. So, and then now we have this Robert Porter saga, whereas, again, his credibility is on the line. And at this point, we can't believe a word that's coming out of his mouth, but it's paralleling the rhetoric of the society. When women come forward, especially, especially about domestic violence allegations, these men try to shut them down in various and I think intentional and egregious ways. Mm. For example, Trump even tweeted his support of Rob Porter. Oh, he's a very nice guy, whatever he was saying. And this was followed by John Kelly's remarks talking about the integrity of this man as though him having integrity in the workplace can completely negate the fact that he's a woman abuser at home. That's actually something that was responded to by both of his ex-wives, each of them saying, yes, he's a great professional, Yes, but he is a terrible partner. I think it's also really important what Trump said because in that tweet while defending Rob Porter, he also questioned whether due process was still a thing. Which I think is a very, a very complicated <sighs> question, and another one that makes him kind of like shoot himself with his own foot. Because Hashtag Central Park Five. Like you've again proven that you don't understand what these words mean, but again, I guess because you're president, that means that you can use them and throw them around. Look, think about the international implications of the president of the United States tweeting: "Is due process like <laughs> still around? Like, do we still have due process?" Anyway. Yeah. But I, I, I think that it's really frustrating, especially from the American public, knowing that there are so many people caping for him, including women within the administration. For example, Kellyanne Conway and her remarks and her very unnecessary input about Hope Hicks and the fact that Hope Hicks, the White House communications director, and how she's dating uh, Rob Porter currently and how she's allegedly a strong woman as though that takes away from the narrative that these women were violated physically and mentally. And so we see this several times in society as not only men come forward and try to suppress these women's testimonies from the president himself downwards 
but also women are doing the same thing. I even heard this on Angela Rye's podcast where she was trying to act as though the victims of sexual harassment should take some type of accountability when it comes to the way that they dress and such because allegedly men are preconditioned to do this type of thing. Well, no, men are not preconditioned to do this type of thing. Men need to keep their hands to themselves and society needs to stop vouching for them and then scapegoating the women. Which is, I think, the primary lesson that we need to learn from this. So I think it's clear that Trump keeps terrible company when it comes to the treatment of women. The fact that Rob Porter is gone is is not even mentioning the fact that yet another person on the Trump uh, team, David Sorensen, he was a political speech writer, has also stepped down also because of domestic abuse allegations. We're not talking yet about the fact that there are over a dozen allegations against our current sitting president for sexual assault, sexual harassment, etc. So the fact that there are so many people at these you know, upper echelons of the Trump administration who are doing and committing these types of acts, either in the present or in the past, right, because these all speak to your moral character— The fact that they've made it this high into the Trump administration, especially with Rob Porter not even having FBI clearance, Mm -hmm. is questionable. The fact that it took them this long to react to it is also questionable because it's clear that they knew about some of these allegations a long time ago. And that's actually why John Kelly is getting so much heat right now, too. Yes, this type of behavior has been normalized, especially in the political realm, and now it's being emboldened by the president himself and the highest staff members of the administration. This is not going away for sure. In fact, we're hearing news this week that there's actually about to be an investigation launched to determine, one, whether or not Rob Porter resigned or was fired, Mm -hmm. and who knew what and who took action. Another investigation. Hello? Too many. Too many. So... Keep an eye on that. We also wanted to talk about Uma Thurman and the amazing piece written about her in the New York Times a couple weeks back. If you haven't read it already, you need to. It's a really important piece of writing. And she's been building up to it over the past couple of months now. There was an interview that she had after Harvey Weinstein became embroiled in this recent scandal where people were asking her opinion. She said... I'm not yet ready to talk about this because I feel like I'm going to say something that I'll later regret. And so now she finally um, has taken the time to think about these issues and to talk about them in an open setting. And I think we learned a, a lot of really important meaningful experiences that she's gone through, especially with the director, Quentin Tarantino, with whom she has worked for many years. In this piece, Uma just takes us through her experiences working with Quentin Tarantino and Harvey Weinstein. She talks about sexual abuse. She talks about how this abuse was facilitated by Tarantino's behavior and the violence generally against women in the entertainment industry, particularly in the movies, for example, Kill Bill. She felt that several times she was put at danger. For example, she was put in a car that she knew wasn't working and that ended in a crash that ultimately led to her having long-term health issues. Now, Quentin Tarantino decides that he's going to come through, push through, and comment on Uma Thurman's story and her account of abuse. And in his account, talk about a little Kim. What did he say? What was he talking about? I mean, I actually don't want to give him any time on our podcast. Well, I want to give him time. I mean, it, it is very much the same type of... of gaslighting that you would see in a lot of these conversations that we've had already. Same thing with Rob Porter, uh, where we are able to reframe the conversation. The piece that uh, Quentin Tarantino was featured in where he responded to these allegations talk 
about situations that seem very different from what Uma Thurman was describing, at least with regards to his emotions or his frame of mind. So it, it just, it's very clear that there's a disconnect when it comes to the experiences of women who are going through uh, sexual harassment, who are being asked up to hotel rooms and, and, and having men walk out in bathrobes when they're supposed to be talking about business, right? Like the, the fact that Quentin Tarantino was around for all of this, had heard about some of these things and did not take action, goes back to the entire reason why the Me Too movement was started, because people see these issues, people don't talk about them, and as a result, women continue to suffer for long periods of time. And that's something that Umar talked about, too, the fact that it wasn't just about sexual harassment. It it is small things, too, that even may have to do with your work. The fact that Quentin Tarantino put her in that car, knowing that she had uh, concerns about it, knowing that she didn't want to. The fact that during the filming of Kill Bill, there's an iconic scene where Uma Thurman's character gets spat upon, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very visceral and you're, you know, shocked and freaked out. We learn now that that was actually Quentin Tarantino who did the spitting. Like, he... He intervened mm-hmm. and volunteered to do that, you know? And so, it, which is, of course, you're working, you're an actress, these are some of the things that you are, are do for your craft, right? You're making art. But it also shows how women are treated in these industries, how men can create scenarios in which women are, 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 are abused and or put into really dangerous and violent situations. I completely agree. I think it's so interesting to read the different accounts because they had such different recollections of these events happening. Even when we're talking about this bit, Quentin is completely like, oh, you know, it was so light. She knew I had to do it. I was supposed to do it. I'm the director. I could do it best. And Uma, she was clearly uncomfortable with it. And she thought that he took delight in the fact that he had to do it. And so I think that his response just reflects the patriarchal masculinity that's embodied and celebrated in Hollywood. But her response shows the feminist viewpoint, like, okay, you guys are continuously subjugating us in every arena of life. This is pervading my career as well. And I felt violated. But again, no one hears me. I'm really proud of Uma Thurman for doing this. I I was really excited to hear her take on this. And I hope that she continues to, you know, have a voice in this community, that this doesn't affect her career, that this doesn't impact her in a negative way. I think we've gone a long way in terms of watching the Me Too movement evolve in such a short time frame. At first we were saying, well, when is the Me Too movement going to hit the political sphere? And now it has, and it's doing it in a very bold way. The fact that Rob Porter is dealing with this, the fact that Donald Trump is being forced to speak on these issues. Although, even if what he's saying is very irrelevant. Right, and, <laughs> and even though he's not being forced to reconcile the fact that he has accusations against him, it's still important that in the political realm where a lot of these issues are very prevalent, that people are being put to task and people are losing their jobs for this, which is what we want to happen. Trump is mad that someone's entire career could be destroyed because of an allegation. I'm happy. Me too. I'm very proud. Me too. Hashtag me too. Oh, hashtag me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to get into Trump's newly released 2019 budget. We're worried. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm shook. Shooketh. It's a lot. It's a lot. President Trump has now released his fiscal 2018 budget proposal, which would completely eliminate 66 federal programs for savings of $26.7 billion. So a laundry list of different things have been affected. Many different departments have had changes made to them in this proposed budget. Negative changes. 
we're going to go over a couple of them quickly, but then we each have our own kind of bone to pick within the budget. So (laughs) the opioid crisis is receiving $17 billion in funding. It's very important that there is money being put towards this, but it also shows in stark contrast the fact that when a majority of white people are dealing with an issue of drug addiction, that it's treated as a public health issue, but when black and brown bodies are dealing with the same types of issues, it is a war on drugs. AKA crack epidemic. Which... Attorney General Sessions has actively wanted to restart. So, mm-hmm. next. Reparations. Where are the reparations? Next is Southern Border Defense, which is getting $18 billion. By Southern Border Defense, I really just mean the border wall. Uh, that also includes a doubling of the ICE enforcement agents to be hired, which is really scary because that just means there's going to be further deportation-related um, actions being taken by the government. It also increases the number of immigration judges who hold these hearings for people who are subject to deportation. I think a, a larger number of judges is a good thing, but whether or not those judges are going to be sympathetic to the cause of undocumented immigrants who come here to flee violence and strife and and economic worries, whether or not they're going to consider those things and be sympathetic is to be determined. The Defense Department would be receiving $686 billion, which would be... One of the largest requests in history. Exactly. Maybe it's stuff on the military parade. Maybe he wants, like, champagne. Maybe that's what he's (laughs) adding this money for. It would be up $80 billion from last year's budget. And as Brie already said, it's one of the largest requests that we've received in history. This is why I'm always annoyed when folks are on the right and they're saying, well, the DOD is being undercut and we aren't funding our defense department enough to be able to tackle terrorism. It's like you're getting the most money of any department already. What more do you want? So my bone to pick, the low-income budget cuts. Mind you, when I talk about low-income communities, we know that these communities are disproportionately black and immigrant, and so that's my biggest issue. So Trump has basically cut every single developmental program that's supposed to help these low-income communities, such as the minority, okay, so literally this one says minority, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the Minority Business Development Agency, the single-family housing direct loans. He has cut choice neighborhoods, housing and urban development, and we already know Ben Carson has been at the Home Investment Partnerships program's throat since he's gotten into office. The self-help and assisted home ownership opportunity program account, just several accounts that are targeting low income and particularly minority communities. But what I am most pissed off today about is this new food stamps proposal. Indeed. I am so mad. I was nauseous when I read this. He is proposing that we reduce the funding for SNAP. SNAP stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Programs, popularly known as food stamps, by $130 billion over the next 10 years. Not only that, not only is he cutting the budget, but what he wants to do is he wants to, instead of giving people the money to buy their food, he wants to package them like like the Soviet Union did. Let's just go all the way back there because that's where he gets most of his ideas and send them out to the families. So, What in the paternalism is he thinking? (laughs) I am so mad. I was mad when I saw an article that said Trump wants to turn food stamps into a Blue Apron program. That is not Blue Apron. These (laughs) these are not going to be gourmet meals being made. So that's the first thing. And and the the other thing is he's describing this as an aggressive set of actions to redefine the proper role of the federal government 
government. Okay, so now the proper role of the federal government is to reach out and make meals for people and meal plan and send them to people. And mind you, these aren't going to be your regular, even chicken and fish or whatever, because you can't send that in packages. It's going to be like cornmeal and milk. And so this is army food that he's trying to give people. And I have never heard of anything so, you know what? I have heard. You know what? Take it back. I have heard it in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. It's I, I've heard of it before. In those in those regimes, you know, this is nothing. This is totally totalitarian, and this is just another one of Trump's ways to implement fascism into our democracy. Nothing new. I was really frustrated by it as well because it, you're absolutely right. It's only going to involve shelf stable items, meaning that you're going to get a lot of canned goods, right? Ugh. A lot of boxed goods. Nothing would be fresh in that package that you're receiving from the government. And then you also would be losing out on the money that you could have been using potentially in a more efficient and effective way to buy food for yourself. And that that's my real it's issue. It's just illogical. What about allergies? What about right. things that the families don't, don't eat? What about families that don't eat meat and such? And they're using this rhetoric that people are fraudulently using this SNAP system. But there, if you look at actual empirical data, only 1.3 cents on the dollar is fraudulently used. And that money is used, but it's used for personal needs in the household. For example, if a mother wanted to go to a small convenience store and trade some of her benefits for like toilet paper or something, sometimes they do that. It's, it's illegal, but sometimes they do that. That's the type of fraud they're talking about, helping people in need. And this flawed rhetoric continues to be pushed in order to just discredit the entire need for redistributive policies in just generally and we saw it down we've seen it historically we've seen it with Reagan coming up with his whole welfare queen and we've seen it we saw it with Clinton and how he pushed mass incarceration and now look we're seeing it with Trump giving these block grants and these meal trains giving the states wide discretion Another thing I wanted to add is that people don't understand that this is not just free money being thrown to families. Each family who receives food stamps, 54% of it goes to children, and then 16% of it goes to elderly. $346 a month they are given. They're given actually less if they don't work. There is a work requirement, and Trump has mandated that most states be unable to waive that work requirement. So if you're receiving food stamps, it's actually supplementing your income because you're working for it. So it's not like, oh, the state's just giving away free food. So this box thing completely undermines the reason that we actually give food stamps in the first place. And again, the message behind the policy, it shows what Trump thinks about pork. Well, not just Trump, the rest of the Republican Party thinks about poor communities and black people, particularly minorities in general. And it's, I wouldn't even say that it's necessarily aimed at minorities because the majority of recipients of SNAP are low-income white folks, the folks that Trump has been courting with many of these different policies and programs, even though they never really benefit them. I mean, another, uh, another thing that I was going to add into that is just the fact that these are food stamps, meaning that they only can be used for fraud. So to your point, like... You can't use food stamps to buy a number of other toiletries that you would normally need. You can't buy shampoo, soap, toothpaste, toilet You can't toilet even paper. use it to buy some food. You can't right. use it to buy food that's hot and sold in the store. You right. have to use it to buy ingredients to make the food at home. You can't use it to buy alcohol. You can't use it to buy cigarettes. Some things already, well, most things already, they are, have already banned from you being able to use your food stamps on. And so this... Again, this flawed rhetoric is just completely divisive and incorrect. Which makes me really frustrated because when Trump talks about this notion of the proper place of the federal government, he's insinuating that that's a reduced role 
in state affairs. But it actually isn't, because if you're now determining what the poor will eat, that in itself is an extremely paternalistic and uh, like action to take, and it actually increases the impact that the federal government has on the lives of the average everyday worker. And all of a sudden, he wants to act like he knows the role of the federal government within the federalist structure, because from what I've seen... From what I've seen, it's not been so. From him going off on every judge who banned something that that's very unconstitutional that he tries to push, to him going off on news outlets and saying that they can't publish what they want to, um, he has never been completely, um, I would say, knowledgeable about the role of the federal government. So my particular gripe is going to be over the Department of Education, which is receiving $60 billion in this proposal, as well as an overhaul of most of its programs. Now, the $60 billion that are allocated would be down 10.5% from last year, meaning that that's roughly seven or so billion dollars that has been removed from the budget. The reason that they're removing this much money is because they're taking away programs that are supporting low-income undergraduate and graduate students. Let's go through that in more detail. The work-study program, which many students rely on in order to be able to be financially sustained in school, is being revamped to focus on quote-unquote career readiness. Now, what does that, that even mean? It makes no sense to me for, the pri- for this primary reason. When people do work-study, they don't want to have to do work-study. They don't want to have to work the notion is that you have to be able to work in order to get enough money to pay for rent, pay for utilities, on top of going to school five, six, seven hours a day. So the average work-study program would be one that involves menial work. You might be working at a, at a restaurant. You might be working at the library. These aren't going to be things that necessarily relate to your school. And oftentimes that's a good thing because it means it can kind of be mind-numbing work that isn't going to put you to the test, especially if you've already been through a whole day's worth of class or if you're going to class after. Especially when these are work requirements that are going to be met either early in the morning or late at night. Because most people are going to go to class from 12 to 5, for example, and then go to work from 5 to 7, 5 to 8. Under this program, work-study would only be available if it related directly to a student's career aspirations. He wants it to be seen as a job training program, which again assumes that we aren't already training for careers. The fact is that we are. The issue is that our careers aren't paying enough and that our schooling is too expensive to go and do those careers. There's a whole other area of that that is added when he demolishes the loan forgiveness programs that are available for people and actually is the main reason that so many people can do public interest work in the first place. When you go into public interest work, you're not going to make a lot of money. It's just a fact of life. It's it's really frustrating, but it's true. And a lot of people make that sacrifice despite the fact that they know that they have debt, that they're going to have to pay off. So by removing the loan forgiveness program, especially the public interest loan forgiveness program, which basically allowed you to waive your debt after a certain period of time if you spent it in public interest careers, doing government work, doing nonprofit work. So say, for example, if I worked for 15 years at a nonprofit and I still had $20,000 worth of loans left, that $20,000 could be waived. Under this new program, that program would actually be expanded, but in ways that are actually not helpful. So under the Trump proposal, 
undergraduates who are trying to enter the loan forgiveness program would have to pay for 15 years consecutively before they would be waived uh, out of the program and have their loans forgiven. Graduate students, however, would actually have to pay for 30 years before they would be able to have any loan forgiveness opportunities available. This program also eliminates subsidized loans, loans that do not accrue interest while you're in schooling, something that is a major part of reducing the loan burden for students. This proposed budget would also change the way that the DOE looks at income, specifically allowing them to have more control and more access to your income information to determine whether or not you're lying about your ability to pay. So that, again, falls into the same notion as with the food stamps of not trusting people to actually tell you the truth. When we are out here getting an education and having to pay tens of thousands of dollars to do that, you are now going to tell us that we don't, that you don't believe us, that you don't think we're actually paying what we are able to pay when it comes to these loans, which is extremely frustrating. And for people who are in public interest legal careers in particular, it's really frustrating and actually could prevent us wholesale from entering into the profession. Because if we have to pay for 30 years in a public interest career before our loans are forgiven, we're often going to go bankrupt before that even happens. We're not making nearly enough money to be able to put in that many years worth of financing to be able to do that. We're for fortunate here at HLS to have a program that allows us to pay off our loans with assistance in 10 years time frame. Imagine doing that for 30 years and still having the burden of debt on your shoulders. So this budget also reframes student debt as a failure of universities to teach students for high paying careers. Take for example me. I had a sociology degree in undergrad. If I didn't go to law school, I would have been working in jobs that would not have paid me very well. $30,000 to $40,000 a year were the jobs that I was looking at. If I had difficulty paying for my loans, which I likely would have, under this budget, Trump would be blaming my university for me making $30,000 in my sociology career. And they would then force the university to assist me in paying my financial aid responsibilities. And it also could result in universities trying to be selective about what types of programs they're going to allow students to enter into. If you're doing a sociology program or another humanities program where the rule of thumb is that you're going to live as a poor person for the rest of your life, they're going to start focusing more on those STEM programs like they already are. They're going to be focusing on those medical sciences, on the engineering sciences that are going to give people a lot of money when they graduate, because that way the schools wouldn't have to be on the hook for any loans that the student took out in the process of getting their degree. So the, the, again, a lot of the budget is assuming that people who are doing the work are not actually being truthful or are in some way deficient and need more of an incentive to actually be upright standing citizens. That in itself um, is such a really problematic and, and annoying notion to even think about. It is, and it's being advanced by the common trope of the bootstrap issue, whereas they're saying these people need to work for what they have. These people need to show some type of self-responsibility. We even saw it across the board when talking about immigrants. And when I told you again what John Kelly said about the dreamers, they need to work. They need to get their expletive up and do the work. So it undermines the work that these individuals are actually doing with this very narrow and incorrect assumption that they can be doing more in order to navigate social resources. And I know specifically from personal experiences that that is just not the truth. So we're hoping and praying that this budget doesn't actually get approved, though 
what Ugh, what we, options Lord, are available with a Republican Congress with the public. We right. we don't know. We right. don't know. But I expect that there will actually be a lot of lawsuits about these types of issues because under this budget, a lot of people would begin to suffer significantly more than they were under the Obama administration or even as of last year when many of these programs still were in operation. I mean, going back to the food stamps issue, in order to qualify anyways, you already have to be 130% under the poverty level. So taking this away and just sending people whatever you want to send them, they're going to be even more poverty stricken. So, so the fact is, all of the money that should be going to people in the country to be able to develop themselves and to be able to build a better life for themselves is being taken away to focus on this abstract notion of defense from brown folks that are south of the border and also from people overseas who apparently want to attack us. Well, it's like, internally as well, to a lot of the law enforcement agencies, like, for example, ICE, and the states are given a lot of discretion on how they spend this money when it comes to, for example, prison reform and such like that. Right. So this is just another example of, like you were saying, external aggressive militarization on a global stage, but also internal. Internally. Mil- exactly. But not even in the right ways. Like, are they focusing no! on terrorist activities by white supremacists that are no, happening no, no. here? No, they're focusing on, like Session said, drugs right. and minor infractions Hello. committed primarily by minority communities. So what I really want is for all the money going to the Department of Defense to go directly towards paying off these student loans. You can write you can you can put me <laughs> as a budget line item directly into this 2019 I just budget. Just not ever to bring up SNAP again. Just leave it alone. It's fine. It's fine. Just exactly. Like don't make it don't, worse. Do not be like Snapchat. Learn something from this Snapchat update. Leave well enough alone. <laughs> I'll let you leave it at that. And I'm I'm now leaving Snapchat at that too. <laughs> So today for the petty, my favorite, my favorite. (laughs) Indeed. Kylie Jenner comes out of hiding. So as you know, Kylie Jenner gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. I didn't know. (laughs) Go ahead. I know. I was on on the shade room. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Stormy Webster, so cute, Mm. with her beau, Travis Scott. Oh, Maybe Tyga, we don't know. Perhaps. Um, <laughs> Questions that need answers? This exa- well, I would like an answer. But this Maury. entire time, <laughs> Mari Povich, uh, this entire time that she's been pregnant, she actually has not been seen. We didn't see her pregnant not one time. And right. for 10 months, Kylie Jenner has just been in hiding. No photos of her has surfaced. I thought someone was going to catch her. I was sure that I was going to get one paparazzi or maybe even two paparazzi photos. I'm actually, I agree with you. I, especially because so many people in the Kardashian clan were pregnant or are rumored to be pregnant at the same and, time. And they're just so public. They're just so, no, they're just so right. out there. Like, I'm just always seeing the Kardashians. And so the fact that she was able to keep her belly out of the cameras for almost a year is crazy to me. She has great friends and this is the kind of thing I talk about when I tell you, Malia Obama, start listening to the podcast, you need better friends. <laughs> I mean, congratulations for, you know, young Stormy um, out here about to continue the Kardashian brand. I'm she entirely we- sure. She's a Webster. She's a Webster. Word? Yeah, let's remember that the only Kardashian heir is, is bl- Black China's <laughs> baby. <laughs> Black China. I was about to say. <laughs> is Dream Kardashian. So she is a Webster. But... Uh, congratulations. Oh, you're to, right, because Kendall isn't even... Or, she's a Jenner. Kylie, right, she's, she's a, a Jenner. Jenner. Exactly. I said Kendall. I'm terrible. 
I was gonna I was gonna, I was just gonna throw in the small I was just gonna throw in the small comment about the fact that Kylie Jenner can be a, a teen mom and that's totally okay. It's totally fine. But, yeah. but but it's also like look, is she ever gonna work in her life? So Oh well, Quarter, are well you, <laughs> you know what I mean by work. Labor. If we wanna right, I'm like if we wanna talk about the lip kid as work, then sure. Yeah. I guess that's work, but <laughs> I'll, let me leave her alone. Let's let's just let's just leave that subject alone altogether. Congratulations, Chris Jenner. You have another African American in your lineage. I know that makes you happy. Look, <laughs> these jeans. You have another one. So Mama I know Chris you're knows happy. what she's doing. <laughs> so next, we're going to talk about Trump and his military parade. We discussed it a bit when talking about the fact that he wants to expand the military budget to the highest it's ever been in history, but. What is it about this military parade that's pissing everyone off, even people in the military, just so you know? So first and foremost, Trump came out, I think he was at a meeting with a foreign diplomat and made the comment that like, hey, all these other countries are doing military parades. Look at France, look at North Korea. They're the really cool. We should do one too. And it was kind of just that. And apparently the rest of the White House went scrambling to try to figure out, one, is this feasible? And two, is he... For real, like, does he actually want us to do a military parade? <laughs> I think he 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 does. He I'm pretty sure he apparently got the idea while he was in France. Yeah, and I think he just pictured his old saggy orange self oh, no. on the top of the balcony of Waving. maybe even the Trump Tower, exactly, with Melania, who's probably going to be looking very miserable, right. waving and and doing that the pageant wave too, because you know he loves pageants as well. I'm but sure he'd be in military like, like regalia. He'd probably be doing like the like the the long like if you've ever seen a video of like the North Korean military parade where they do the long stride yeah, and I'm sure someone, he's be doing someone that. who deferred various times the uh, opportunity to actually go into the military due to what it was at shin splints like do you care like do you actually care about <laughs> do the you military? actually care other than he only talks about the military pertinent to the take a knee movement which actually has nothing to do with right. the military and now the military budget and Trump, Trump arguing, would be when like, he's arguing on Twitter with North Korea. Trump would be like, where's the suitcase with the military code? Like, where did, did you not bring it? Like, how are they not going to be a part did of the parade? Did you not bring my nuclear weapons? He probably wants another go at the inauguration parade. And, uh, that, and that's what I'm really thinking it is. He just wants another opportunity to be able to showcase American might. And this is probably what he means by when he says peace through strength. I think he literally just wants to go on display with weapons. And he just wants to say, look at all of... Like, in the same way that people post pictures with their guns just for the sake of showing that they have guns. Like, you're wilding for no reason, basically. You know what I mean? And, and it's also showing that there are actual real implications to this. Like, we just heard from a a member of the military, a member of SEAL Team 6 who was actually involved in the Osama bin Laden raid, say that this is a terrible uh, idea. Because it, it reflects a lot of the things done in fascist regimes, but mm -hmm. also... I think that he's doing it in response to North Korea because they do that all the time. Everyone knows North Korea is popular for propaganda and taking those military photos and sending them to the United States and such. And so the fact that he's trying to, with this budget, get at least 25,000 more soldiers, more nuclear weaponry, and then come across with this huge parade that's going to be photoed clearly nationally on a global stage and the photos are going to be sent in an envelope, like like the burn book, like mm. thrown under the doors of all, of the, all the North Korean leaders' doors. So, I mean, Kim Jong-un is going to be shook. It's yeah. going to be a redo. It's going to be a redo of my nuclear button is bigger than yours, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gonna they're going like... to be definitely on Twitter going back and forth, for sure. So there's actually news that came out earlier that Mick Mulvaney has done the math on this and found out that the parade would cost between 10 and $13 million. 
And I'm, I, I just feel in my spirit that Trump would be like, yeah, sure. Like, yeah, that's, Money that that's cheaper than I thought. Money that could be going to SNAP benefits or maybe even Hello? to DLE. Hello? Or my pocket or my loans. <laughs> or my loans, okay? exactly. So Trump is for real about, about making this military parade happen. I actually am not, like, wilder things have happened in this past year alone. So I would not at all be surprised if we're setting up for a summer parade where he's running down Pennsylvania Avenue <laughs> with, like, all of the fighter jets flying through the air and, like, hey, join the Army. Like, you know what it could be? It could be when, you know how the, I think it's the Navy and the Army have a football game every year? Mm. It could be related to that. That would actually kind of be... Maybe he's going to start that draft, you know, where he starts forcing everybody over the age of 18 to... You to know, do, to, to enlist? Enlist. In oh, he wouldn't draft. dare. He wouldn't make that. <laughs> I mean, a lot of things you think a normal president of the united states wouldn't dare do have been done indeed so. indeed hmm. moving right along talking about things that a president shouldn't be doing and things are getting called out on apparently omarosa as we know black woman anti-black omarosa who was actually accepted in the trump administration very unclear as to what her position and she her was supposed daily. to be the black person basically like hey if, if, if you're mad yeah. and you're black talk to her yeah you definitely have a, <laughs> like you definitely have a platform if you're a black person working in the white house on that basis alone but she was fired from the white house for apparently abusing her authority or something i don't even know and then she went on to go back to reality television where she belongs and where she originally came from so now she's on big brother with my boo tiffany pullard who i love and she's over there talking about how she was haunted and i quote by trump's tweets every day i think she was crying and whispering during I mean, this heart to heart i don't watch big brother but i mean if you've no, ever you seen the preview like Everyone saw the preview. It was, going, it was circulating around CNN. I think I may have seen it on Twitter, but it's like if you if you know how it works, if you have all these cameras directly in front of you, but it, you're looking like you're having a private conversation. So she's like whispering, but it's like you have cameras right in front of you. You know that what you're saying is being broadcast on on TV. But, but she's she, whispering anyway. But she's like, yeah, you know, I just I feel like it was it was just so horrible to be there, and I just don't. I was so you know worried for what was going to happen to the country. Yeah. Keeping in mind that earlier in the campaign Omarosa was saying things like well if you're if you don't like Trump you're just you're gonna eventually have to bow down to him like she Which was making disgusting. all these comments like I defending know, him exactly she was defending Trump but when she was removed from the administration she defended her decision to work for someone she knew was the antithesis to her entire being as public service but like is she even like Still supporting her that? Her typical being. Her female said, not, not in, we don't know. But like, I don't even know if she believed that anymore because on Big Brother, she was saying, oh, I, it, like, someone asked, would you vote for him again? And she was like, never, never, no, I would never vote for him again. I think she was fired and she's very self interested. But one thing that she did say that did ring a tad bit of credibility, at least for me, was that if Trump was ever removed from office, we would be begging for him back. Should Pence take office. Yeah, that's the recent kind that's of tidbit a, that's come out of it. I feel like each week there's probably going to be something new coming course, from Omarosa. She's spilling that tea. Someone was actually talking about the fact that this is a pitch in the making for her upcoming book. Like, each episode she's going to be giving out some type of information that we can expect to read more about in her book. And so she's using this as a plot to increase the value of her forthcoming book. Which I'm, like, Omarosa's a, a hustler. Okay, I'm not even going to deny that. Like, she knows how to make the game work for her. But, like, she's very insidious, and, like, I don't like her as a result of that. But anyway, there's actually new reporting saying that the reason that Omarosa was ultimately fired was because she was 
misusing a car service that is available to staff at the White House, which the federal government had, you know, put some type of restriction or forbade her from using. Wow. She should file a claim of maybe discrimination. I mean, it just came out. the fact that certain people in the administration... Uh, Tom and Betty were mm. misusing the the jets. <laughs> I mean, also and now a thing. she can't even use the car service. I mean, so... also a thing, right? But no, for real, like who who is she gonna go to in, within the White House? She gonna go to HR and be like, "Hey, I was racial. <laughs> I was, I'm a victim of racial discrimination." Like, they just look at her like, "Okay." They will and laugh. So is the rest of America. They but, will laugh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just very clear that Omarosa is doing this for the money and she's doing this to get as much screen time as possible. And it's the working. Clout, the cloud. It's working. I'm not mad at her for that part, but I am mad at her for trying to make it seem like now suddenly she is afraid of Trump and that Trump is, a, is you know, Girl, a danger the tea for the and country. Girl, spill the tea and stop playing games. Right. The pot calls you been new. <laughs> you been new. You been new. Spill the How many times have you been games. on The Apprentice? I'm going to read your book. Three? How many times have you been <laughs> Three, on The Apprentice? Fired. You know Trump. Exactly. You know, that's your best friend. And that's what she said, too, when she got hired. She was like, oh, but if your friend came and told told you that he was running for office, what would you do? I'd tell uh, him no. <laughs> what? No. Seriously. Well, no, if you were running for office, I would totally support you. But I'm not Trump. I know. If my friend was Donald Trump. That wouldn't be my friend. Hello. I, I have so lost I wouldn't friends. Be in this situation. I have lost friends over supporting Generally, him. Generally, I'd probably say no regardless because being the president is exhausting and I don't think anyone actually would enjoy doing that. But still. But like, still. The notion is no. I Like, you don't have any excuse for supporting Trump and then now leaving because you got fired. Omarosa doesn't have an excuse for half of, well, 98 point, well, 99.2. I'm <laughs> <only> the, <laughs> the percent of the things that she does, and I'm over it. The, maybe she had an excuse for using that car service, and now she's been ejected. So She literally was overusing government Uber, and they were like, no, exactly. we don't, we don't, no, we don't oh, buy Exactly. It. Not Lyft today. Not today. <laughs> you better call that Lyft. <laughs> You better call that Uber. <laughs> what in the Black History Month have we got here? Oh, God. By Omarosa. Alrighty, folks. This has been another episode of Petty Politics. Bringing thank- you the petty and the politics. So cute. Thank you so very much for listening. Oh, uh, do we have any like cool things happening that we want to talk about? Anytime we soon? do want you guys to subscribe. We do want you guys to email us. Yes, definitely keep sending us your questions. I've been getting tons of different emails and, and text messages and Facebook posts and Instagram DMs. Please send everything to our email address because that way we can consolidate it and we can keep a list of everything so we're not forgetting about certain people. Our email is harvardblsapettypolitics at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing you and we're going to be sending out more information on ways that we can directly support you with your law school application process. Awesome. All right, y'all. Have a good week. Bye. Have an amazing week and remember to hit that subscribe button.